Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm fired up to welcome in our next guest because I loved reading his work for years. We've been unable to have him on the station due to the embargo that was out there for all those years. But right now, he's got... All sorts of great stuff out there. He's got a new book coming out in a little bit on Coach K. The Belichick book was outstanding. The Jeter book was outstanding. Let's welcome in the legendary columnist, the author, the great Ian O'Connor. Ian, what's happening? How you doing, my man? Hey, John. How are you? Good to talk Ian, to you. I'm doing fine. It's a pleasure to have you on, first and foremost. And you came to mind... Because I was thinking Tiger Woods, and I was thinking about the Orny and Jack book that you put together. And listen, thankfully everything's okay with Tiger. We're not talking about anything that's life-threatening. But when you were working on that Orny and Jack book way back when, you had to be thinking in the back of your mind, Tiger Woods is going to shatter all of Jack's records, correct? Uh, No question, John. There was a time when I thought Tiger Woods was going to win 25 majors. You know, Jack's record, of course, is 18 tiger now at at 15 and i remember talking to jack i was on his private jet we were flying from calgary to palm beach where he lived and while i was working on that book and boy that was an experience as you might imagine but he said at the time you know if, if i knew that a tiger woods was going to come along i actually would have tried to push it from 18 majors maybe to get to 20 but he focused on his family rightfully so and he actually uh he said there was a period late in his career when he de-emphasized golf a little bit to focus on his, his kids going to their high school games. And he felt in retrospect, you know, if, if I just knew that Tiger Woods was, was going to come along, I probably would have tried to push that record out a little bit more. So it really looked like Tiger was going to blow past that number 18. And of course, because of a number of incidents in his life, the injuries, the surgeries, and, and now, who knows, this, this could have ended his career. I hope not, but it, it's not even appropriate right now to talk about it in golf terms, John, because it was just so serious and so devastating. And 
And, and right now, I, I think the thought I have, I think most people in the golf community is you just hope he has an opportunity to get back to a, a normal life where he can grow old and, and be a grandfather and watch his kids grow up and get married and have successful lives and careers. And as, as, as opposed to worrying whether or not he's ever going to play competitive golf again. Ian, totally fair. And, you know, I have to admit, I always was a Phil guy. Beautiful lefty swing. I'm a lefty hack. His mentality, his personality, he's always been the guy that I've rooted for. So when Tiger was at his peak, Ian, I was rooting against him like crazy. He was like rooting for the Lakers. He was like rooting for Michael Jordan. I I found no joy, no satisfaction in that. That all being said, the last two or three years, I've done a complete 180. 2018, when he makes those runs in the major tournaments, I'm rooting like crazy for him. 2019, when he won the Masters, I I thought it was one of the coolest things I've seen in sports in a long, long time. Have you gotten a sense that that, like, shift in personality for Tiger, being humbled the way he was, almost in some ways, allowed him to gain even more fans in the process? Uh, no question, John. In fact, I, even family members I have who told me the first time they ever really rooted for Tiger Woods was at the 2019 Masters because he had been humbled. He was really a broken man in, in, in many ways, not just physically. When you talk about the infidelity scandal, the DUI arrest and the video, the roadside video, and talk about a low point in a man's life, and then all the surgeries and the fusion surgery and him basically conceding uh, a couple of years earlier that he was done. He was telling people he was basically done as a competitive golfer. He told Gary Player that. He told other uh, champions at the Masters that it was over. And then he came back and and arguably, or certainly one of the greatest comebacks we've seen in sports in this generation. And I think that uh, so many people rooted for Tiger Woods in 2019 at Augusta National because he had become more approachable, more relatable, more human. And I tweeted something today, if people get a chance to look at it. He accepted the Ben Hogan Award at the Golf Writers' Dinner in 2019, four nights before he won the Masters. And it's a five-minute speech. And if you go to about halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through, and listen to Tiger talk, about the people who covered him, the people in the audience, Johnny Miller, who he basically didn't like, and the respect he showed to those people, it's a Tiger Woods you never really had heard before. And I would encourage you and your listeners to to go listen to him talk. And he was changing. He was trying to become better as a man, as a father, and as a human being. And I think that just brought so many more people into his tent. So when he did win in 19 at Augusta, I think, and I've been doing this now uh, more than 30 years, and I've covered a lot of great events, but I do think that's probably the greatest sporting event I've ever covered. Wow. That's saying something right there. That is saying something, my friend. Curiously, Ian, you have this great wealth of experience being around so many great events, getting to cover so many great people. I'm curious about your process, though, in writing these books, because you've written so many over the years. I love the Belichick one. I love the Jeter one. Um, your process, how do you go through a process and saying, there are all these storylines going on from a New York sense, from a national sense, I'm going to write about this in a long form type of way. How do you go about that? 
it's really an idea that strikes you. You have to be so passionate about the idea because writing a book is the hardest thing to do in this profession, in my opinion. Anyway, I've done a lot of different things. Nothing compares to writing a book, book particularly if you're not doing it with the subject and sometimes not with that subject's cooperation. Belichick was lobbying people not to talk to me, and yet I was able to talk to 360 people for that book. Now, start to finish, that was a three-year process, and I've never done anything that was more difficult in my professional life than that. I was basically standing at the, the bottom of Mount Everest looking straight up. And, but when you get to the summit, and, and, and that book is in your hands after the amount of work you, you do on it, hundreds of interviews and and reading other books and other magazine pieces and other newspaper pieces and Internet pieces over the years, it's, it's an incredible amount of work. And, and ultimately, uh, the feeling, though, of gratification when you're done and when you deliver the product is really, to me, unlike anything else in sports journalism, in journalism, period. So, uh, But you, if you're not passionate about the idea, as I was about Arnie and Jack, as I was about Derek Jeter, as I was about Belichick, don't attempt it. <laughs> Don't try it at home because it, it is a, a very difficult process. The great Ian O'Connor, he joins us here on The Fan. Ian, what do you think Bill Belichick was thinking? I know you didn't get cooperation from Evil Coach Hoodie when you were trying to write your New York Times bestseller, but you got a sense of what the guy is. You put together an unbelievable book. What do you think Belichick was thinking somewhere in Florida or Nantucket as he's watching Brady and Gronkowski win a Super Bowl in a Buccaneer jersey. Uh, what do you think, JJ? I mean, uh, a couple of four-letter words. That's that's right. my first thought, Ian. Uh, he probably turned it off. I, I don't know if he stayed with that game when he saw the way it was going, and that's human nature. Uh, and, and I think that that's okay. And listen, the, the one thing is, there were people in the building in the final days of Brady's stay in Foxborough who really wanted Bill for once, just this one time to show him some love and affection and kiss his you-know-what a little bit to try to convince him to stay, to offer the second year in the contract, to, to just tell him how much he meant to the organization, to the Kraft family, but also to himself, to Bill Belichick and his career, to try to convince him to stay. And I think Brady might have changed his mind had that happened, but that's not who Belichick is. He, he is never going to do that, even for Tom Brady. So Brady had uh, one of his friends, one of his close friends told me there was no incident at the end there between Belichick and Brady, but, but Tom was Belichick out after 20 years. He needed a break and look at the coach he picked, a guy whose motto was win or lose, we booze. And a guy who, and Bruce Arians, good coach, not a great coach, had one postseason victory to his name. Belichick had 31. And he picked that guy because he knew that Arians was going to be a much lighter touch, much more human. Hey, let's go play nine holes of golf after practice. Things that Belichick would never do. And Tom wanted that. He got it. And, hey, you've got to give it to the guy. I thought it was a big gamble leading the AFC East, which he had dominated for so long, to go into a division with a program like the New Orleans Saints who can rattle off a 13-3 and season. Uh, they, they did that a number of times. So, he, he took a gamble, and he won in a, in a very big way. And I think Belichick has to look at what was the point of letting this guy go when you didn't have a plan at quarterback. And now, of course, they're looking around trying to find one. They might ultimately have to settle for Cam Newton, uh, the sequel, which I don't think is a great option.
I ain't kidding. And I'm curious because, listen, he really has nothing left to prove. And for my money, he's the greatest NFL head coach I've ever seen in my life. You know, I didn't get to see Paul Brown. I didn't get to see Vince Lombardi. I'm going to be telling my kids, my grandkids, about the way the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady dominated over 20-plus years in a salary cap era in the NFL. But do you think the one last thing he has to prove aside from getting Shula's record, which I know he absolutely wants, is that idea of winning without Tom Brady. You think that means a lot to him? Oh, of course it does. And I know he was talking years ago, uh, looking forward to the day of having an opportunity, J.J., to win a, ch- a title without Tom as his quarterback. As much as he appreciated what Brady meant to his career and his legacy, he, he did uh, look forward to that day, and that day is now upon us. And the fact that Brady's won with a different coach – Absolutely, that means something to him. And I I will say this about Belichick. We've all focused a lot uh, on the terms of their divorce and the way that went down. But you do have to give Belichick credit for drafting Brady when nobody else did, pick number 199 in 2000, and developing him over 20 years into the greatest quarterback slash player of all time. Bill does deserve some credit for that. He also deserves credit for keeping him there for 20 years. So, uh, yeah, we're going to focus on the way it ended like we usually do, and, and maybe rightfully so, but I, I think that shouldn't be forgotten. One other point about him being the greatest coach of all time in the NFL, which I agree with, uh, he might be the greatest coach college or pro because you look at uh, Nick Saban. Nick Saban every year, he gets to pick the best high school players in the country. He's getting the best players every year as recruits out of high school. Bill, he's at the top of the league every year, at least he was when Brady was there. He was always picking at the bottom of the draft. So big difference there in the NFL when, as you know, the whole system is designed to prevent you from having a dynasty, and Bill built one anyway. Ian, you were tweeting about this during the summertime, and I certainly felt the exact same way because I was pounding the drum. I was screaming it from the high heavens. The Knicks needed to hire Tom Thibodeau. He was a disciple of Jeff Van Gundy. He's a guy who knows New York City in and out. And he was 100-plus games over 500 as a head coach. I've been wanting to see it for a long time. The sense I got, you felt the same way. Are you surprised with the level of intense just competition and energy and tenacity that you're getting as a whole from the Knickerbockers? To me, it's refreshing. Listen, Ian, I know they're limited. I know they're not going to the top of the mountain. They'll be lucky to even make the playoffs this year. First time in a long time, though. I feel pretty good about the Knicks. Well, I'll be honest with you, John. I actually would have preferred Jeff Van Gundy, who wanted the job. He wanted the job when they hired Fisdale, and he wanted it again this time when they hired Tibbs. Because I saw Van Gundy do it in New York. And I hadn't seen uh, Thibodeau do it in New York. I know he wanted to. He's wanted this job forever, as you know, as a Knicks fan growing up in Connecticut. But I'd like to hire. I would have preferred. I would have gone Van Gundy one and and Tom two. But, hey, I I thought he would do a good job. I will say this. This is actually the easy part. This reminds me of Bill Parcells with the Jets in 97. He takes over from Cotite, one and 15, total disaster, and he gets that Jets team to nine and seven in year one. The hard part is what Parcells did in year two. He put that team one half away from the Super Bowl in Denver against John Elway. That's the hard part, going 12-4 and in year two and being a real championship contender. Now, I don't expect Thibodeau to do that in year two, 
but that is the hard part. What he's done here is he's just gotten his team to play defense and compete on a regular basis. And when you do that, you're going to win your share of games in the, in the NBA. I, I think they will make the playoffs. I, I think they might end up playing Brooklyn in the first round, which would be a heck of a series after the play-in tournament. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised just because I thought he would do what Bill Parcells did with the Jets. Just by showing up and being competent, that you can get back to respectability pretty quickly, and that's exactly what he's done. Okay, Ian. You've been in this town a long time. You've covered all the teams in this town for a long time. Brooklyn right now has got three to top 15 players in the NBA on their team. Durant, Harden, and Irving. And you know this. They're not getting the buzz with me or anywhere else that they would if they were playing at Madison Square Garden. I can only imagine what it would be like if that was the team... And that was the group that was playing wearing New York Knickerbocker uniforms. What are the Nets as a franchise going to have to do in your eyes with those guys to like generate that sort of momentum when it kind of matter here in town? How do they do that? I don't, I don't know. That, that's a good question. That's a great question. And I don't know if I have a great answer to that question, John, because we saw the New Jersey Nets go to the NBA Finals two years in a row. Now they lost both of them to the Shaq Lakers and, and, and then the Spurs with Jason Kidd. And it didn't really matter relative to the Knicks and their hold on the marketplace. I don't know. I, I, I guess if the Nets win two championships in the next three years, they could be right there with the Knicks in terms of the, the hold on the marketplace. But I, I'm not even sure that would do it. Now you're right. I mean, just picture uh, well, you know, the Knicks were never going to have a shot at Harden, but they obviously had a shot at at Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. It didn't pay off. They didn't land those players. Uh, but with those, with fans in the building, in the garden, it would be incredible. I, I just don't know if you'll ever get the same feel, the same sense of that in Brooklyn. And I, I'd love to see it happen. I'd love to see Brooklyn win a championship this year, next year, whatever it might be. And I was in favor of the Harden trade because I always felt like with those three guys, Harden's very durable. One of the other two is going to be out, maybe not more often than not, but quite a bit. So chances are in a lot of nights across a, a long season, only two of them would be available anyway. But I, I think that uh, I, I just don't know if the Nets, and I saw it in New Jersey, they couldn't get it done even though they made back-to-back finals. I don't think uh, the Nets are going to take the city away from the Knicks ever, even if Dolan's the owner for another 15 years. I just don't see it happening. Ian, final one, and I appreciate the time. I will never forget waking up Sunday morning after maybe one too many cocktails up in Syracuse and going on Twitter or, no, it wasn't even Twitter at the time. It was like an old school, you know, web just pulling up stories and whatnot. And I might have been listening to Francesa in the NFL show, and he was referencing your sit-down with George Steinbrenner right before Game 3 of the 2007 Division Series and basically issuing the edict, Yankees better win or Torrey is out. Describe to me what that was like, especially at the end. You know, George was this this icon. He was this lion. He was the guy full of these mission statements. And then that final one in 2007, it was the end for Joe Torrey. Was that like a crazy, exhilarating type of an experience? covering that and being able to break that story? Because I remember I I was yelling, screaming. I was upset because I didn't want the Yankees to get rid of Joe Torre, quite frankly. But take me through what that was like. Well, if you recall that series against Cleveland, that was right after the Midges attacked 
Jabba Chamberlain. Jabba Chamberlain, yes, sir. And, and Joe Torre later said I should have taken uh, pulled the team off the field. And George was very upset about that. That's the last interview George Steinbrenner ever gave. And his health had been in decline. He hadn't given an interview in a long time. I knew he was in New York City for he was going to attend that next uh, playoff game uh, at Yankee Stadium. I knew where he stayed. Every writer who'd been around the team for a long time knew where he stayed. So I called the hotel a couple of times, got lucky, got through to him, and he said what he said. And, and sometimes, uh, what did uh, Branch Rickey say? Luck is the residue of design. And yeah, that was one of those cases where I got a little lucky. Somebody picked up the phone and George was in the mood to talk. And he was in command of his thoughts at the time when I interviewed him. And he said some things about A-Rod. He said some things about Joe Torrey. And, and we had a pretty good story. But it, it, it's just that when I, when I talk to journalism classes, younger people, I, I give that example. It's just, hey, make the extra phone call. Always make the extra phone call because you're going to run into some luck when you do that. You have to give yourself a chance to get lucky. So uh, other than that, it, that, that's all it was. It, it blew up for, for a little while. Of course, Joe Torrey did, did leave, but they, they did offer him his job. They, they offered him his job back, and he didn't like the, the terms of the deal, and he left. So he could have managed that team the following year, but he chose to walk away. Ian, I can't wait for the Coach K book. When is it coming out? Uh, a year, let's see, next February. So uh, a little less than a year from now. And uh, I'm sort of hoping he doesn't uh, retire on me. I don't think he will. I think he's got a few years left. So hopefully Duke will have a little bit of a stronger run next year. Than they, although they're playing better now. They might be a little... Watch them sneak in the NCAA tournament. They smoked Syracuse the other day, and It wasn't even close. They embarrassed yeah. them. Right. Uh, by the way, you're a Syracuse guy. I, I think Beheim needs to stick with that uh, point guard, Richmond. Uh, and, yeah, I've had enough for Joseph Gerard III for a while. He can yeah. play 10 minutes a night, Ian. Richmond, the Brooklyn kid, no surprise, gives him spunk, energy, and the defense is drastically better. Just saying. Absolutely, Just saying. yeah. His athleticism going to the basket is such a difference maker for that team. Ian, this was a ton of fun. It's always a blast. Uh, I'm glad that you're doing well. It's great that I actually, actually can you know find a way to have you on the show. What a, what a concept, you know? Uh, but keep up the good work. I'm looking forward to the book and all the best. Okay. Hey, I'm proud of you, man. You've done a great job. You've had a great career and uh, keep it up. We'll try, man. That's a great Ian O'Connor. He is a New York times bestseller. The Belichick book is terrific. Coach K book coming out February of 2022. This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.